All right, just a little introduction to the book of Ezra, which you have to have read by the end of this week. Y'all ready? All right, as Christians, we know because the Bible teaches that we win. That's right, we win. We win down here, we win up there, we win. Even when it appears as though we are losing, we are winning because God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be united and reconciled to His Son. His Son is the heir of all things, and we too, united to His Son, are heirs of all things. The meek shall inherit the earth. In the end, we win. And we're even even progressively winning today. Even in suffering, God uses suffering to help us, to discipline us, to chastise us. Even corporate suffering, God uses to purge the church. Corporate suffering and affliction like the church being under a tyrant, can be thought of like a gardener weeding his garden, getting the weeds out. And that's what we see happening in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We see that the church had been disciplined, not judged by a wrathful judge, but purged and spanked, really. When God spanks his church, he doesn't obliterate them or kill them or cast them into outer darkness. But it does hurt, and he hurts in order that he might save them and redeem them and purge them and purify them, and that's exactly what was happening to the church in these books. As you know, Israel apostatized from the Lord as predicted in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he sent Babylon to carry them off into exile. Assyria had already destroyed the ten northern tribes, but he carries off the the southern tribes, the elite, the aristocrats, the wealthy massacres thousands, but carries them off into Babylon. And we get certain people like Daniel, right? You're familiar with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're trying to be faithful under tyranny in slavery in Babylon. Well, eventually, the next great world empire rises up and defeats Babylon. What's their name? Persia, the Persian Empire. And of course, we, many of us have friends from Iran. We have four Iranians in our church, four or five, and they are descendants of, of the Persian Empire. Kind of interesting to me. And this Persian Empire eventually takes over for the Babylonians. And it's during the reign of the Persians that Ezra and Nehemiah are sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild, to reconstruct to revive the church's worship, and to literally build the walls of Jerusalem. It's during the Persian Empire that Esther sacrifices her life, or is willing to sacrifice her life, to save the Jews from the the king's decree and from the evil plots of Haman. I'm assuming y'all are familiar with these books to some degree. Raise your hand if you've read Ezra. Most of you. Nehemiah. Most of you. Esther. Most of you. Good. I hope y'all are all doing the, raise your hand if you're doing the Bible reading challenge, reading through the whole Bible in a year. Amelia, Jude, Lucas, very good. Oh, uh, so-so over there, Adeline? Yeah. All right. Well, you'll, we'll have to give you uh, your discipline, your punishment later when you get home. All right. All right. Well, the first great Persian king, and you need to know this, bold print, Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great, the first great of the Persian kings. And his kingdom would extend for many years up until the point where the Greeks defeat them at the Battle of Marathon. 
That's a good stopping point for the Persian Empire. Remember, the first great global empire is Babylon, representing the head of gold in Daniel's vision. After the Babylonians are the Persians, and then after the Persians are the Greeks. That's why we're studying all of this, because it, it affected the, the culture of the world in which the Bible was, was formed and in which Jesus came. And so these, this Persian Empire was dominant for many years. And while it was dominant inside the Persian Empire, you think of the Persian Empire scaffolding around the church. Inside the Persian Empire, the church is being protected, disciplined. They're under tyranny. They're under slavery. But they're being purged and they're being rejuvenated and restored and they're repenting and crying out to God for help and they're crushing their idols. All of this was prophesied by, by uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, by the way. And so after having cried out to the Lord, having crushed their idols, Isaiah says in chapter 27, I believe, that they ground their idols into chalk. I like that expression. After that, God moves in the heart of Cyrus the Great to allow them to return to Jerusalem to restore worship in the Promised Land. Okay, that's the main gist of the, of the book, the main importance of it. Meanwhile, and this is very interesting and something you need to know for your quiz. Meanwhile, while Ezra is building rebuilding, restoring the worship of the temple, and Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. What's going on over in Greece? You should know this. The Peloponnesian War? No, the Peloponnesian War was about around the time of Isaiah, before the exile to Babylon. No, yes, the Peloponnesian... I thought you... I was thinking of the Trojan War. Yes, the Peloponnesian War is going on. And... And the tragedians and the comedians are writing, Aristophanes and Euripides. And who's teaching in the academy? Socrates. Very interesting, right? That this Greek culture is being established in the golden age of Athens. All the way across the world, a tiny little remnant of Jews is being liberated by Cyrus the Great and they're restoring worship in the temple. I think it's about 700, years, 700 miles away. In Rome, Cincinnatus is ruling. And we're going to be moving on to the history of Rome later. But Rome is not an empire yet. It's really just one of the many competing uh, cities or towns in that particular region in the Italian peninsula. And guess what's happening in Asia? Buddha and Confucius are teaching. So this is a big time in human history. Israel's being restored to the promised land. Peloponnesian War is raging. Who will win? What will happen to classical Athens? Rome is just on the horizon, and Buddha and Confucius are laying some of the groundwork for the great Asian cultures. And with all of that going on, what story does God tell? It's very interesting, right? With all of that going on, he tells the story of a courageous man named Nehemiah, who is organizing the troops and mobilizing volunteers to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Or a priest named Ezra who's, who's editing various books of the Bible and restoring the public worship of Israel. And Esther, a, a, a Cinderella story really, a, a 
a nobody who rises to power to save all of the people of Israel, you would think that God would tell the story of, of the ascension of Rome or Socrates or the great teachings of Confucius, right? But he actually tells the story of these little nobodies because he's setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah and the explosion of the church around the world. Amen? Makes sense? All right. Now, let's talk about Cyrus the Great just a bit. When you read the biblical account, you almost get the impression that he's a Christian. And he may have been. He may have been. But in 1879, archaeologists found a tablet called the Cyrus Prism. And he writes on the Cyrus Prism, this ancient document, why he was restoring the temple and some of the other things that he was doing. Let me read that for you. Listen to what it says. It says, I am Cyrus, king of the world. You don't have to write this down. I am Cyrus, king of the world, the great Persian empire, whose rule Bel and Nebo love, whom they want as king to please their hearts. Marduk, the great lord, induced the magnanimous inhabitants of Babylon to love me, and I was daily endeavoring to worship Marduk. I return to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time. That's Jerusalem being one of them. The images which used to live therein and established for them. And he did. He restored to Jerusalem all of the artifacts and the furniture of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. So he returns the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, all of that stuff. He returned the permanent sanctuaries as well. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. Furthermore, I resetted upon the command of Marduk, the great Lord, all the gods of Kinger and Akkad, whom Nabonidus had brought into Babylon to the anger of the Lord of the gods, unharmed in their former temples, the places which make them happy. So you can see he wasn't a typical tyrant. So... Think of like a communistic tyrant. Do they allow you to worship your own gods and have religious freedom? No, of course not, of course not. What about um, you know, the, the ancient city of Rome and the Roman Empire? Were you allowed to worship other gods? Or were you, did you have to only worship the gods of the Romans? A little bit of both, a little bit of both, that's right. What about in the United States? Do you have the freedom of worshiping whatever God you choose? Mm-hmm. Something to think about here. But Nebuchadnezzar, not Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus was not a typical tyrant when he issued this decree. He's what you call a pragmatist. And you already know this term. He's a politician. He knows what keeps people happy. And he knows that the best way to rule over a massive swath of land from Greece to India is to not try and force everyone into one tiny little mold, but allow them to worship all their own gods with one caveat. Y'all know what the caveat is? That in addition to worshiping their gods, they worship the real god of the system, Cyrus. That's right. The king, the emperor, the state, the government, basically. So Cyrus is one of the, the earlier statist monarchs or statist tyrants. And many, many would come after him like this. And the Romans were like this. You could worship your gods as long as you gave a little incense to Caesar, the true god of the system. 
And that's exactly what we have in the United States here today. We have supposed freedom to worship whomever you want as long as it's not the one God who says all the other gods are demons. Right? As long as you are inclusive, that's the term, inclusive. As long as you're open-minded. As long as you allow for there to be a neutral space for everybody and everybody's religion to play along in the political sphere. But true Christianity doesn't allow for that. True Christianity says you have to worship Jesus and Jesus alone and that all the other gods are demons. And so when God puts his church, now listen to this. This is the main thing I want you to see. This is the world that Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel and Shadrach were having to live in. When God disciplines his church and puts them under tyrants, sometimes he puts them under tyrants like the former Soviet Union, where they send everyone off to the gulags. But sometimes he puts them under these secular tyrants that as long as you're inclusive and you don't say Jesus Christ and Christ alone, you keep it vague like God right, or a higher power, then you're fine. You're fine. But if you say, I worship God and God alone, that's when you get into trouble. And that's what the Christians in America are under. We're in a system just like that. Our nation is moving into its empirical stage. What does that mean, empirical stage? We're becoming, we already are an empire, and we're becoming more an empire. What were we before we were an empire? A collection of nations. Yeah, we were a representative republic under a federal government. Before that, we were a a collection of states that were united together under various covenants. But we were a representative republic, but the representative republic has evolved into an empire, just like Rome did. Rome did exactly the same thing. And as the empire continues to expand, Persia did the same thing, by the way, and Greece. As the empire expands all over the world, our country is going to want, to want just like Rome did, just like Cyrus the Great, going to want all the gods on their side. Bring all the gods in. All the gods are, are free to worship here. It doesn't matter what religion you're, you're from or what creed. We don't discriminate. Have you heard words like this? We're not allowed to discriminate on, on religion, supposedly. Right? And so our country wants all the gods to come in and join their national cathedral. And, and as long as you don't blaspheme the gods, you can do your own little private Jesus thing in your prayer closet and in your church. But if you stand up on Capitol Hill... If you stand up in the public square and you say Jesus is king of kings over all the evil gods and he is king over this particular nation, you're the one that's going to be getting in trouble. And you're going to see that happening more and more. Just as in Rome, it changed to an empire and worship of Caesar was demanded, more and more in the United States, you're going to see the worship of Caesar, the worship of the state, forced on Christians. And you can remember during COVID that that was clearly what was happening. What was deemed essential during COVID? Uh, Pot dispensaries, right? Um, Walmart, but not little family-owned businesses, and certainly not the church. The church was deemed non-essential, and you were commanded not to go and worship God because of a health risk. And what did many churches do? They locked up for a year, a year and a half. Yes, sir, right away, sir. And God used that to purge many fake Christians from his church. But faithful Christians refused to have the government tell them who to worship and when to worship. We continue to worship, and we don't alter our worship 
for Cyrus or for Caesar or for the federal government. And, and when this continues in our nation, you're going to see um, churches purged and purified. And, all the, and what I believe will happen is all the people who are there for entertainment, who are there for networking for their business, who are there so that their children can have uh, a free babysitting on Sunday mornings, all of those people will drift away and be purged out of the church. And uh, eventually, God will raise up people like Ezra and Daniel in the political sphere who will say, we worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And uh, I'm looking forward to that day. Do you think we have anyone like that now? We're all looking at Mike Johnson wondering, is he going to say Christ and Christ alone? That's interesting. Will he be in Ezra? We shall see. Time will tell. All right, that's it for today.